Hello, Billy here, host of Even Baddies Wear Helmets, the podcast all about the craft of making children's television in conversation with the wonderful people who make it. It's been a while and so much has happened. How have you been? Good. I hope you've been looking after yourself, drinking water, wearing sunscreen, etc. Now, if you listened to series one of the podcast, well done. Welcome back. If you didn't, don't worry. You can find all eight episodes on whatever podcast platform you like. You'll find chats with the brilliant creatives behind Netflix's Hilda, Channel 5's Milkshake, CBBC's The Dumping Ground and many more. Now, me and lovely producer Clodo were hoping to make a second series of eight episodes for you, and we got going. We did. We got uh, two of those episodes in the bag, but to be honest, uh, we've been a bit busy with our jobs, which we do. Sadly, this is not our jobs, um, and the ongoing bin fire that is the pandemic, and we thought that instead of sitting on two golden episodes while we wait for things to get going again, uh, we would release them to you as a little appetizer, a little taster, rather than keeping them at the back of the fridge so long that they get a bit wilted and sad. And then hopefully, when we're less snowed under, we can get cracking again proper. Sound like a plan? Good, well, let's get on with it then. Uh, So bonus episode number one. Well, in our first series, we talked about writing animation, we talked about voice acting for animation, we did not, however, talk about directing animation, which is a whole other kettle of fish. So this episode is about just that. I'm joined by the wonderful Ed Foster, who directed 104 episodes of the preschool series Little Princess, before going on to create and direct his own original series, The Rubbish World of Dave Spud for CITV, which was nominated for a broadcast award the week that we recorded this, which was quite a while ago now. Both are shows with a lot of cheek, a lot of spirit and a lot of laughs. And as a director, Ed is involved in all aspects of animation production from initial ideas through script development to voice recording and editing. It's a big job and I'm very excited to hear more about it. Ed trained for his MA in animation direction at the National Film and Television School, a course which often sees graduation films winning BAFTAs and a course which Ed has also lent his insight to as a tutor. We talked about character design, music and whimsy, and I think you're really going to love it. So let's get started. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm very well, actually. It's Friday. I've got a drink and uh, yeah. It's the best way to see in the weekend, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here to talk about directing animation specifically. So I just want to start by asking, how did you get into animation in the first place? Oh, um, I didn't have any great passion for um, to do animation. It was just, I did drawing. I suppose it's a common story, you do drawing. People say, well, I like your drawings. And so um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I did a foundation, which tried a bit of everything. And then I um, put down your usual university choices. And I ended up going to Hull, which was my second choice, because um, I totally fluffed up my uh, first choice interview. But the good thing about Hull is it had animation as one of the specialisms that you could try. I mean, the tutors were really good, really excellent visiting tutors. And then they kept saying nice things about my work. And that way it was really good, good for my ego. <laughs> and I had, a, I think, a, a healthy disdain. I was like most students do have. I think they think they're going to change the world or something, or they've got something original about them. And I didn't, I really didn't like um, 
in animation that you could spot what was going to move because it would be the simpler drawn thing. So in a Scooby-Doo scene, there'd be a trapdoor which would be just flat color and that would be what would open <laughs> because that's <laughs> you could tell. And that I, yeah. I hated that as a kid that it would point, that animation had to be simplified. So I made a vow that I wouldn't simplify too much for animation. And also the stories that I like to read, like Roald well, Dahl and the kind of dark humor, um, I wasn't seeing as much animation. Of course, it existed, but I didn't know then as a student that it was out there for me to find. So I thought I was doing something original by bringing that kind of storytelling uh, to my work. And as I say, I made some films. They did well, and that, that sort of started my career. And it wasn't by any great design. It's just somebody says, oh, that's done well. We like that. I give you an award for that. And suddenly you're in London knocking an animation studio door with an award going, give me a job. <laughs> that's really interesting though that that um yeah like you say not sort of having a specific ambition to go into it just sort of picking up the the skill by chance absolutely that's why i feel a little bit of a fraudster because it's like a lot of my animation colleagues love animation they love it they live and breathe it they have they collect the the, the figurines they watch it they know all the different shows um you know they're they're fans genuine fans mm-hmm. and I'm a genuine fan of cinema and television. I'm absolutely a fan of storytelling and the moving image. Just It just doesn't narrow to animation. Animation is just one of those forms. Animation wasn't the draw. I think it was, I, I wanted to find a career that I could earn a living from. It could have been graphic design, it could be an architecture, but it was just, I didn't want to be a bedroom animator. I wanted to be able to make a living. So I quickly had to learn the skills that could move me forward in the industry a little bit, which wasn't easy because I'm not a natural animator. <laughs> and I think as well, that, like you said, there are people who are, you know, complete animation obsessives who know all of the shows and who know absolutely everything and have been sort of lifelong fans. And that's that's fantastic. But I think something about coming to it from a slightly different angle and having, you know, references that maybe come from outside of animation. I mean, I think there's, there's you know, there's, there's pros to both. Um, I wondered, like, you say you sort of had to pick up all these different skills. And, and as a director on an animated series, you're sort of responsible for all of it. And I yeah. wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about what being a director on an animated series actually practically entails. <laughs> um, it's kind of, for me, it's wonderful because <laughs> I have an opinion on everything. And it's like a jack of all trades, master of none, that sort of thing. And it's like, I love the fact as a director, you get to have a say on everything but you also have to be um really diplomatic so you have to be aware that everybody has their own skill sets and they have their own uh viewpoint and uh and they have a reason why they say that so you know so being a, a good listener is important and also being diplomatic which is i've been told i am is just taking on board that feedback and then choosing out of it what is the best course to go forward with? Because you ultimately, as a director, you just have to make a quick decision on many things. And that's that's something I don't, I'm not very good at in anything else in my life, but it seems to be when it comes to storytelling and animation uh, storytelling, um, I've got very quick and adept at doing so, because you have to just keep moving on the schedules, always asking you to move on. So it is listening to all those different viewpoints and you get so many from so many people collate them together and 
appreciate that they're all kind of gifts they're gems of information and jewels that people are giving to you they that's their time they're giving to you with their viewpoints and it, they don't have to do it and the fact that they give it to you and they want the best from the project is brilliant so you kind of have to sift through that very very quickly and then pick out the gems that will move this particular project forward in a vision and um depending on what that vision is so it's slightly different on little princess because that wasn't my creation uh but for days but it is my creation so in a way i can make those decisions a little bit more confidently on Dave Spud because I don't have to answer to anybody else as much mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. there's still a caveat over that because I'm obviously I'm working to an audience and uh, a kind of a brief on that but um script editors and people like that are there for to kind of pull me back if I go a little bit too far yeah yeah that's yeah it's it's the I mean the spinning of, of many plates but I, I find that really interesting that idea of taking all of the advice and and the kind of the speed of it I think we we talked a little bit in the first series of podcast as well about how kind of working in children's comes with the territory of doing animation was like making work for children something you were particularly keen on or or was it like kind of animation in the first instance something that you just sort of stumbled into a little bit I think that stumbled into it when I made my graduation film I was thinking what kind of storytelling do I do? I tried to look at my work and assess it and look down what was in front of me. How would you categorize that? And I'd had people say in interviews and things like that, oh, yo, your work is kind of family-friendly um, storytelling. That's what it is. It's not cutting edge. You know, you're not going to be doing like, um, you know, the, the absolute cutting edge, like um, adverts and advertising. It's like, it's kind of humor um they they gave references to things like Roald Dahl and things like that which kept coming up and I was like okay that's what I do that's where I feel comfortable that's I'm putting my natural sense of humor into my work so this is obviously where I'm sitting um the slightly darker side of children's storytelling maybe but that's no problem and I felt that was missing also I still felt that was missing in um children's tv and animation so I thought I had an angle or a niche where I fitted I think you have to kind of work that out about yourself. You need to kind of work out what do you do that's kind of fitting a a, a gap or something. And mm-hmm. um, that's what I thought I did. So I pushed that. So I knew I was trying to aim for the family kind of animation market with my, in my graduation film. So I kind of made all the ingredients in it, tick the boxes of almost an animated series episode. <laughs> <laughs> Everything down to like, who the main character would be, the protagonist, and um, leaving out swear words and um, giving it a story arc. And yeah, I was definitely pitching a pilot almost as my graduation film, even down to the voice cast, thinking, who's, how am I going to make a student film get noticed by the industry? How, how can I give them confidence that I can work with, you know, in the industry? And so I used voice cast that were big names for a student yeah. film. And to get, you know, people to give confidence that I could work with big names and they would also work with me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was all very, very um, contrived in a way, but it worked. I mean, it paid <laughs> off. And, and yeah, and there's, there's so much that I, I really want to kind of unpick, especially, I mean, stuff about like voice cast and stuff will come to a bit later because you have worked with some amazing like legends, um, like Brian <laughs> Blessed and, and all the rest of it. So um, I, th- I find it interesting as well, that thing you were saying about, kind of fitting into a family friendly niche but with a darker edge because I feel like family friendly sounds 
sort of fluffy whereas mm. I think your work isn't um, but at the same time it is it's definitely fun and it's and it's kind of adventurous and cheeky but it's that that dark streak is a really interesting niche um, and that's kind of I guess in terms of like tone and story but I'm also really curious about how you develop the kind of visual style as an animator you find a kind of unique visual identity that, that runs through your work does that make sense yeah it does um I have no choice on that it's um it's how I draw and um and what I'm comfortable with so I never had a formal kind of still life life drawing kind of education so when it comes to figurative drawing of like people I'm rubbish at it so I'm aware of that so I don't try I don't try and go down that route so what I do with confidence I go down a more stranger lumpier kind of odd character but what I do try and push and get out is their personality and attitudes like if I can't look at a single drawing and get a real strong sense of personality out of that drawing or attitude at that character then I've I haven't drawn it well enough so Mm -hmm. I'll push the mouth you know higher and higher until they got a very strong stare or you know really go with like the staring eyes whatever it is it's not about drawing it well it's about getting that character, that person that inhabits you know, that that uh, drawing until they start speaking to me. And so I, I'll keep going and keep going until they start saying, okay, now they're really, <laughs> they're really saying something on the page <laughs> at, at me back. And that's what I like for my characters. I really, I like strong personalities and a strong uh, character that I feel like I can bounce around or throw around, which I do to my characters a lot. I, I don't treat them very nicely, but I want a character that I, can handle it and um and won't break <laughs> so. i love that i love yeah a character who can handle it that's such a good oh that's just a really great way of putting it and then that that um almost like bringing them to life before they've been animated that sort of yeah if they feel real and fleshed out and you can almost hear the voice that's that's so interesting and you should better do it in one drawing it's like it should be just like one drawing of like your character and it, it should stare at you with such intensity that you're having a whole conversation there and you just know what that character would say (laughs) listen to you know it would tell you absolutely to bog off if you tried to do something you didn't like you know you should be getting that from all your characters and uh that's 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 my goal and that's what I try and retain in uh, my Mm -hmm. work Mm that's a hard thing because say as soon as you start working with and collaborating things change designs shift and get stretched and pulled around and even I've done it I've not realized I've been influenced by fashion and other people's drawings and um we'd even did a pilot for Dave Spud and it the, it moved in directions that I didn't realize at the time but I was being influenced by other things fashions mm-hmm. and it lost something and luckily there was a big gap between the pilot and the series and I realized and pulled it back again mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a real sort of discipline that just sitting down and going, okay, what is it specifically that I want to get out of this? And then the the sort of the trick of being able to communicate that to other people in a way that isn't going to lose it, isn't going to kind of yeah. yeah you have to write it down. Like I when I when I teach and I work with students, I'm like, if you've got an initial idea and what you really are so excited by and what keeps you awake, write it down because you'll forget it. And also people question it over and over and again, especially if it's something very whimsical or tentative. And you'll be almost not bullied out of you, but you'll be questioned so much that you'll question yourself and it'll be lost like a little, like a butterfly or whimsy. It'll be lost to the air. And that's my job as a director is to protect, it sounds ridiculous, but 
whimsy. It's like, it's the one thing like I, like in storytelling, everybody's got a skill and a strong opinion and you can improve story by working on it. So you can improve animatics by redrawing them and working on the action. But nobody, nobody is looking to put in or protect a kind of a, a just a sense of fun in the sense that yeah. it's not there for any strong reason. It's just fun. And you can only get those moments when you're having like a, a walk with your headphones on and you've got some music blasting in your head and you think, oh, don't, got a great scene comes into your head or a piece of emotion or, or you just, yeah, it's just a little moment, but it's, there's no purpose to it other than <laughs> it. it's almost like a trip. It's like a little a journey. And it's those moments that get me the most excited. And if I can get that into an episode, I will protect it like anything because yeah, yeah. it's the first thing that they want to cut out because it's not there for any particular reason. And I quite whimsy. And there's old the shows that I like Magic Roundabout were full of it. And it's like, um, and it's really hard to see now in many animations I, I see around now because I think they're they're very focused on clever scripts and very clever dialogue. But I don't see much um, just silly whimsy, I suppose, or just exploring sort of, I don't know, bigger, just sitting in, in we're just basically we're all sat on a big rock in space. So it's just like, just just dwelling on that for a moment. <laughs> I don't think I even I catch, I don't capture that very often in my work either, because it is, it is in a 10 minute episode, you can't, <laughs> it's very hard to justify it. But I keep trying and um, I, I, when I get to write a script, I have more chance of getting it in there. Yeah. Um, but it's difficult. <laughs> I feel like I want to go and like, I don't know, get a can of spray paint and just sort of write, protect the whimsy across <laughs> as many walls as I can. I don't know if that's something I should confess on, on Mike, but um, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's. You that's can join my, my army, protector of the whimsy. We can get jackets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, Little Princess. It's a preschool series based on a picture book. Um, it's all about the adventures of, as the title would suggest, a little princess and mm -hmm. kind of her curios curiosity, her exploring her world. Uh, can you just tell me how you got brought onto this project? Okay, so I did Anna Spud by Graduation Film, the one I was talking about previously that I was trying to do for like, the family market. And it did, did well. Um, it got to festivals and some studios saw it and they go, oh, okay. They could see how it could translate into like series or something like series. So they saw me as a, a kind of a series director. Um, so it got me into some interviews with studios. And one of the studios that was interested was Illuminated Films of Ian Harvey. And he liked Anna Spud very much. He, he's he got a really amazing back catalogue of films that I respect. He saw something in Anna Spud that he really liked. I think it was a kind of a family warmth in it. He loved um so he sorts at me down he was asking about that and well I'd been so busy making it I wasn't prepared for the next question of mm. what next you've made that that's done can't do anything with that now so what what what's next for you Ed you know what you're going to how are you going to move forward I just didn't know how to answer that so I didn't have anything up my sleeve <laughs> which is really uh I, yeah it's daft but it's, I suppose you just don't think about it and so, so I hadn't so I sort of said, well, I'm skint and I don't have um, much money now. I've, I spent all my savings for my master's and I'm going to have to leave London in about three weeks. So what have you got? 
it was the one canny thing I did. I sort of turned the terminals back on the students. I thought, what have you got on your table that maybe I could get involved in that just earn me a wage just so mm. I could help you with it, um, just to buy a bit of time. Um, so they had um, the option on Little Princess and they had drawings coming in and they certainly weren't thinking about me as being the director on it, but they they kind of sat me downstairs on a desk and they gave me like kind of all the materials they had and the drawings they had. And I just started sorting through it. And then they needed a pilot. So at that stage, I started working on what a pilot could be in terms of story, because they gave me of how long a pilot would be. And I knew that it was based on the books, you know, written and illustrated by Tony Ross. So it's actually quite straightforward because I didn't think there's anything of me in this. I just have to basically try and get as much of that book from the page into a pilot as I possibly can. So I really tried hard um, getting that across the style, trying to get the colors to work, the kind of the wash of the paint, all the things that I thought was important to the the original author of that book and to the illustrator. And, um, and that pilot basically got made. It's like um, the, the, the deal was if this, I did it very cheaply, but if the if the pilot got commissioned into a series, which you'd never think would would do, but you'd hoped it would, then I'd get an option of being a director on the series, but maybe not by myself, maybe a co-director with somebody else. Um, but when it came round, I think maybe I'd proved enough confidence that the, the, the co-director bit they, they forgot about, <laughs> which is a big relief. Maybe they were just testing me on a few episodes. I don't know, but uh, I think maybe it's always in the back of their mind. And even I was open to the idea of working as a co-director because I just didn't know if I was up to it or not. But I quickly learned that if you don't have a skill in something, if you're not good, particularly good at something, there's always somebody you can hire or get to do that like I wasn't great at storyboarding I did the first storyboards but I'm very slow and um as I was talking about my drawings they're very much of a style they don't they weren't of the style of Little Princess so they they got the job done but they could then eventually be hired you know storyboard artists and you know background artists and stuff so it was all good but the the my input into the series then became in the cast and uh, the voices and um and bringing a narrator into it all the things that you don't get in the book and expanding mm -hmm. the stories beyond the book because the, the stories are very short and there's only a few books so we needed a lot more that's when i got a chance to really expand it and mm -hmm. luckily by that point i gained the trust of the studio and the producer and they i'm, a, I'm amazed actually but i got away with a lot of requests that I thought were right for the series, like from the choosing Julian Clary for the narration down to making the little princess, you know, Jane Horrocks and making her quite rough and tumble. Um, it seemed completely right, but I was very sort of anti stereotypes of, oh, she must be princessy, so she, mm -hmm. she needs to wear pink or she needs to have a polite manner about her in a very twee kind of way. Um, I wanted her to climb trees and also storytelling wise, if she demands to do something, she might get away of doing it because she is the princess and she could be, the books are very demanding in her attitude, but she's going to crash. She's going to fail. And then we're going to have somebody there watching a narrator who's going to laugh at her and say in a very sarcastic way, well, did that go well? And then she's <laughs> going to pick her feet up 
and have another go and then she's gonna yeah. crash again and then she's gonna have another go i really wanted that again that strong character in her that she was stubborn but would actually have the very human quality of actually having a crash and not protecting her not protecting yeah. her from that yeah that's so true and then avoiding those stereotypes and really yeah making her rough and tumble as you say and you sort of mentioned a little bit there that you had to expand beyond the number of books that there were and I sort of said before that something I just find crazy about animation <laughs> is just that you've I mean they are 10 minutes but you've directed 104 episodes of oh it my which goodness, is yeah. 104 individual stories and how do you kind of keep <laughs> generating so many ideas oh it's um yeah, it's uh, it's not easy. It's, it was harder on Little Princess, I think. Days but it's been a bit more of a natural process. But because um, Little Princess, because it is preschool, that's preschool category. It's um, it's considered as about having more about a theme or learning something like a learning curve. So you have a story arc, but also she has a learning arc. Mm-hmm. Um, I have less of that in Days Bud, but. Um, we we spend a lot of time on the writing. We never try and just say that will do. We always try and upscale it. And even if the writing script is done, when I get to the voice record, I used to have a great rapport with the editor and the even the sound recordist at the studio and the voice cast. And we used to <laughs> we used to um, completely make up extra lines and ad lib all the time and I'm amazed that we got away with it and then we just put it into the into the animation so it wasn't in the approved storyboard or animatic or script that had gone to channel five it's just we all added it later so a lot of whimsy got into it at that stage because we're just allowed to have that space on it and nobody Mm. called us up on it but we're you know we're mindful not to cross the line too much but we definitely played close to the edge (laughs) So. <laughs> having, yeah giving that space to allow those moments that are you know unforeseen and that's when when you are working on something that's got so many episodes making sure that you you take advantage of of those opportunities oh, you to have kind of, to you have to make yourself yeah. laugh otherwise how can you keep doing it uh, new episodes all the time so we used to have a ball just like at the records um trying to make ourselves laugh and um trying to be as silly as possible mm-hmm. and that and that's key and if the whole team are kind of buzzing and feel like they can input and actually suggest things and push things it adds so much mm. so no it was a real real collaboration yeah and we're given a lot of space to do that and again paid off i'm going to jump around a little bit now but something else that i'm interested in that i kind of just want to touch on quickly is that um it sold to over 160 territories it seems that kind of being able to appeal to an international audience is a real kind of skill especially when it comes to animation I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about how that international aspect works in practice because it's something that's come up a few times that you're working with international teams on animation there's people um, I mean like last series we had people kind of like working across different continents how do you like have to pitch to different broadcasters around the I am completely ignorant of this so I think at the the early stages of um, funding, like when you've done the pilots and you're trying to get a, a series funded, it's really hard to get funding. It's like you go with any TV network that isn't um, that's just like terrestrial TV. They will put in a percentage of money. That's all. It's like if you're lucky to get twenty, if they really love it, you might get thirty percent of the money for the series. But you've got to find seventy percent of the money. Then you've got to find all the rest. So you need backing from collaborators and that would might come from broadcasters in different countries um interested partners who might benefit from something from it i don't know like merchandise or book tie-ins or something so i think little princess 
in some ways it's more straightforward because it had been a successful and proven book franchise. So it already had an audience, a, a, a book audience that would be interested in the series. So that made it a lot more simple. Mostly we, you just make the series um, if you've got the funding for it and then you sell it to international properties like international broadcasters a lot of people buy into it once you've got a product like when you've made it and they can see it but yeah little princess went obviously sold to so many markets that i just took that kind of for granted i didn't really think about it um but i didn't know there was that many territories to exist <laughs> but it, on so on tv sense and i think on um dvd sales type of thing i think it was seen it was a huge success and i think it's still repeated even now it's just it's on that side, it's been really successful, but it was never seen as a merchandisable uh, series. Especially considering it has such a huge television following, it never translated into revenues in merchandise. So it seems it's never made into dolls and toys. Because I don't know if it's just because she just didn't look like an attractive doll. Uh, we we did try and get lines into like places like Asda and places like that, but they quickly disappeared. I think we had a few John Lewis nice dolls but plush toys but they just yeah they quickly ended up in tk max and then just disappeared <laughs> so. <laughs> that's so i mean i could i could talk about merchandise a lot well that's the currency of series though and it's like yeah. if you want to think if you want to make a series how does the studio make their money if they're putting in 70 percent of the funding and they take out massive loans and if they can't get loads of international sales how do they make a series and so merchandise is the only way they can claw that back and um so it's amazing that something like, like Princess, you know, it never, you know, seemed to turn a profit on that. Mm. And it's, yeah, merchandise is really important unless you do make shows for, I assume, the self-funding broadcasters like Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon who have the money to make a show um, with no compromise. They don't have mm. to collaborate with loads and loads of different international partners and uh, make a show that works for everybody. They can just do their own thing mm. and then promote it heavily to make it a success and um they make brilliant brilliant shows but um i'm a little bit jealous about that single source of funding <laughs> that they have and that and that that kind of freedom that must give them yeah and it's, it's it is interesting how how it's all kind of so wrapped up in these different elements of the creative vision of it and the trying to like as you say protect the whimsy but at the same time the kind of financial realities and it's yeah. a it's a whole thing but i feel like we should talk about um the rubbish world of Dave Spud in more detail before I get into a merchandising hole because I find it really <laughs> fascinating. Um, so the eponymous Dave Spud is voiced by the wonderful Johnny Vegas, uh, along with his family kind of gets into all different sort of scrapes, whether he's trying to make cash to buy a bike or he's competing in Grimsby's Grimace Face competition. Um, and it was, it was as you say, inspired uh, and drawn from uh, animated shorts that you've made previously. Mm-hmm. I'd just love to hear a bit more about how you kind of, I mean, you, you said that you were you were cautious about getting it you know that question of what do I do now mm. um but how how did you kind of get that original series off the ground I I learned a lot on Little Princess so I I learned a lot as a uh, somebody working in the industry I learned who you can work with collaboratively like what everyone's different roles were and I also learned I think my own voice about when to be confident and when to back down and things like that so I felt by the time I'd done three series of Little Princess, I think I was ready for Dave Spud or Anna Spud, as it was called then, mm-hmm. um, to move forward in some way. So I kind of said, okay, 
okay, I'm, now you can option it. You know, we can we can move forward with this. Because <laughs> um, I always had such a strong belief in it. So it was such an arrogance, but it was just like, I, I thought it was going to be a great series. I had no doubt about it. <laughs> it's like, I had no doubt it was going to be great. But sometimes you get that. You get like a gut instinct that does, you know, if you, if, if there's something kind of niggling at you, it's like, yes, that is that is the thing. It, it was I I loved the, the idea of it. I think that's the main thing. It's like uh, so I it's, I I I only make shows that I basically I want to watch as a kid. It's like um, I try and imagine myself sat in the audience and try and make a show for that person. Like going, what was it that I wanted to see <laughs> as a kid that I didn't get to see? And it's like I'm going to make that show for that kid. So um, that voice and for those people. Uh, so. I f- it, it felt quite important. I felt quite driven that I was making an important show for an audience that was overlooked and ignored. Um, and and the kind of characters that I thought were being overlooked and ignored. And I knew they would love it and appreciate it. And, um, and the humour side of it. So I thought I had something to give. Well, I, I think you have to believe that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you, you wouldn't you know, stay up all night trying to write scripts or push for it so i had a strong belief in it certainly whether it had a wide audience i didn't care i just wanted whatever audience found it to love it i knew and then the rest can hate it that's fine there's plenty of other things but i wanted at least some people for it to have enough flavor for them to, for them to actually say i really like that show yeah yeah so rather than it being bland and just pleasing everybody so it was that so I mean, I guess all those, all those, sorry, the, 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 I mean, words like flavor and the tone and the voice of it, I find the kind of specificity of it really interesting. I mean, it's set in Grimsby and it's just really like refreshing <laughs> to hear, like, I mean, Johnny Vegas' accent and like Jane Horrocks and all these, yeah, like it, it feels, I'm just interested in how kind of region and, and place come into, come into this show as well. Especially when, I guess, when it comes then to like international audiences who maybe oh. will never go to Grimsby. You never know. <laughs> well, that's it. I don't, it's funny. I don't think of it as set in a specific place. Like it's, it says it's set in Grimsby. Sure. It, it, it that's what it says. I'm, you know, I, I went on the um, whole radio the other week and, you know, I've never been to Grimsby. I've never been. <laughs> I, I studied in Hull. I knew Grimsby was across the water, but I set it in Grimsby because it was a place of imagination. I I could put anything there, like prop or I knew I knew what it had. I knew it had docks. I knew it had estuary. I knew it had all the ingredients I needed, and I knew it was set in the north, which was important. But it the fact that I couldn't visualize it actually was what I needed for my imagination to run riot. So it's oh, it's just so it's just a placeholder for the characters and the world. It's still a, a created, invented world with just a name that happens to, to be of a place in the north of Britain. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then with the voices, it backs people up to thinking, oh, it must be that. But it's not, because actually, if you look at the full cast, they're a real mix, actually. And it's more interesting that they have a strong character and a, an interesting voice than it was about them all being region-specific. And it, it, my own family is a real mixture. My, my parents are from Yorkshire, but you know, my brother was born in Wales. I grew up in Wales and it's like I studied in Hull. I now live in England and I don't have an English, uh, I have an English accent, but I don't have a Welsh accent. And I certainly don't sound like I'm from Yorkshire. So I'm a real mix. And it's, um, so for me, it's not about trying to be accurate or mm-hmm. uh, anything like that. I'm not making a documentary. It's just trying to get an essence 
mm-hmm. and certainly uh, celebrating an overlooked quality of like everything's very twee if it's British animation it's just like it's it's polite it's twee and I I really missed color and the richness of the English language when we you know, you don't need to use swear words when you've got, you know, you can accuse somebody of being a daft bap. Yeah. It's just like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it, they're just, but we don't, because um, we get all the Americanisms. We get all the dudes, all the cores, yeah. all the chills in all the series. None of the daft baps. None of the daft baps. <laughs> but we, get, we, we accept all that parochial kind of Americanisms and we go, okay, that's fine. But as soon as we do a British one, they go, oh, they won't get it. They won't understand mm-hmm. it. And I'm like, what they will, they'll get the sense of it yeah. and what it means, but they're not willing to take the chance. Well, luckily ITV did take the chance, but still to answer your, your overall question is, no, we haven't really sold it internationally because I think they do see it as too British and too much of a curiosity. And I think that's absolute rubbish. Yeah, because it, it does, it feels like its own kind of world. Like you say, like it is, you know, it's got a place name, but it's got, there's a real, I mean, just tonally across Nothing the about thing, it really is accurate kind of. to anywhere. <laughs> it, it's like they've, you know, it's the zombies turning into custard monsters and, <laughs> and climbing on top of supermarkets. It's like, it's not, it's not, it's not a, a sitcom yeah. <laughs> based in the street. It's like, um, I have given it, British references but why is that a problem mm. it's certainly not you don't have to know where they are to enjoy it and enjoy their family kind of elements of it and their sort of interactions which is actually the key of it anyway it's all about the family yeah. and how they they support each other and Dave and the kind of his journey in life with his kind of very limited kind of abilities but still his strong sort of sense of I can do this and actually giving the best adventure to him, which again goes back to <laughs> self-referencing, but not always feeling like you have all the skills or being the the kid who, you know, has the best talent, but giving the adventure to the kid at the back of the class who doesn't put their hand yeah. up, give it to them. The, the one who isn't the most shouty and the one downstairs giving the performance, but, you know, to the, the shyer kid. It's like, Dave for me is that, but... I didn't want the character to come across as a weak character. So Johnny was perfect because Johnny imbues all that, mm-hmm. but he still has something about him, which is playful and forward striding, regardless mm-hmm. of uh, what's thrown at him. And I wanted that. So David's strong, but at the same time, a little bit rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love, I love that idea of giving the adventure to the shy kid. I think it's something that's kind of, I can't remember who I was speaking to, but it came up a similar sort of idea of like, we don't want to see the perfect kid all the time. We don't want to see the kid who's, um, you know, has all the answers and is very We want to see the kids that are kind of struggling. And this is a complete um, tangent now from this very lovely topic of conversation about giving it the, the lifting off of, of the average kid but I, I just wanted to ask about this um but the series has a soundtrack from basement jacks and i just <laughs> want to know how that how did that come about and, 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 it, and you get it it works so well the sound of the show the look of the show the feel of the show but i'm just yeah how how did that happen i'm really curious um i i really like music driven um animation where almost like pop videos i guess and also why do we give kid-friendly music what, what is that yeah. what does that even mean yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like um i wanted the bass and i wanted the beats of the in the show i didn't want it to be softened down or anything. so again i thought it was an angle or something you're always looking for something in your show that um maybe isn't always there in other shows and you can like say this is going to make it great this is what's going to make it stand out Mm. 
So I really thought I wanted to collaborate with my favorite kind of music <laughs> artists. I was thinking, you know, Basement Jacks or Orbital, you know, it's like uh, Daft Punk. You know, why not? Yeah, why, yeah. why why not? Why not get AO? And as soon as you start saying that to the producer at the studio, they're already in discussion with the composer that they've had from preschool series and things like that. Mm. And you can see the panic starts to happen. <laughs> like they've already had they've already going down the road of doing what's traditional and of course that works you get the animatic and they work to the picture and they shape around it and so I I think at the time I was on holiday and I just had a panic and I just went on Instagram I saw Basement Jacks had um, an Instagram account and I messaged them no that's way amazing. that's the most amazing about social media <laughs> these days that they do have some way of like getting in touch and so I just said look I don't know if you'll think this is nuts but I'm I'm thinking about to this series. I really think your music could be really good for it. And and at the same time, you know, I've done work before. Please take me seriously. Um, and they obviously didn't say yes, but they took me seriously enough to discuss it more. And then I we kind of talked them around. But I had to kind of also talk around the studio that I would work with whatever I was given because it was a quite a big risk. There's no sense of, or if it doesn't work out, we'll go back to a different plan. Mm. And Basement Jacks were very nervous about their DJing um, kind of schedule that year. So they were like, well, we can't work to picture. We can't have that kind of commitment. I think they were very nervous about time commitment. So I, I kind of said, well, just give me all the music up front and then I'll cut it and lay it onto the picture later. And um, as long as you don't mind that and they, they're totally not precious about me playing their music and so that was the deal so they gave me like albums worth of music up front I tried to brief them and everything I could possibly want not knowing what was going to be written <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, and so I got tons and tons of tracks and soundscapes and they're just amazing they gave me so much so much stuff that I at the time I thought I'll never use that <laughs> you know it's like but I have used pretty much everything they've ever given me and um and it came to doing the second season they just gave me an update to the library to refresh it that's, I mean that's just a great lesson as well in terms of like you know shy burns getting out you have to if you want something if there's oh yeah absolutely you, have, you should ask for it like the worst people can say is no so I, I think I learned that at my university, like when I wanted Terry Wogan and Jim Broadbent and, you know, and Liz, Liz Smith and, you know, Moana Banks and Pam Fest to be on my student film, I wasn't going to say no for that. It's like, uh, it's like if they like the script, they're not going to get paid for this. It's like, but if they really like the script and we make it really easy for them to do, they'll do it if they think it's a good idea. And so that taught me a lesson never to think something is out of your reach. I mean, there's been so many brilliant kind of, I think, takeaways from this in terms of, you know, don't ask, don't get, and just pursuing things that you really are interested in and not always having to get things perfect, you know, actually no, recognizing no. What, your, what your skills are and leaning into them. So I just wanted your sort of last little kind of nugget of wisdom, maybe some of the most important things that you've learned so far. Um, try and identify what it is about in you, like in your kind of psyche or in your identity that you really kind of feel strongly about and sort of hang on to it so it's like if they're that's what i said before it's like if you're trying to make a film or trying to make a series don't you're not making it for you but try and imagine 
the person in the audience you are making it for and what is it that they haven't got that they can already watch so you're not trying to copy something mm. else so trying to work out what they're missing and then give them that experience as I always try and picture that imaginary audience person and like a, you'll love this piece of music when I play or I'm adding music or you'll love this animation sequence when I'm making it or you know if I get some animation back from the animation team and it's really good I'm like oh you're going to love seeing this I get really excited and I don't know who that person is because I don't have kids <laughs> so it's a, a total fictitious audience but it's like they're they're rooting for me and I'm rooting for them and together we're like a little team and um, as long as you feel you have that then it doesn't matter if it's a success or not because actually you've created the audience anyway so as long as they like it which basically <laughs> you can't fail it's brilliant. you can't fail imagine the audience <laughs> And the idea that you're a team as well, I love that, that, that you're working together with, with the imaginary legion. Ah, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Um, and my final question, um, what was your favourite television show as a children <laughs> or, or your favourite kids' TV show now? I feel like you knew this was coming. <laughs> I did know this was coming. I'd listened to your previous ones. And, uh, I wrote down like a list of like 20. <laughs> it's really unfair, but um, it... And also, what age group, what age range of kid was I? So I'd, I'd say that I was really drawn into something that was a really strong sense of um, almost like melancholy uh, and <laughs> just aimlessly floating in, in a space, whether it be real space or kind of a, a fantasy space. So there's any shows that kind of had that in it, willing to be that sort of brave about taking itself very seriously. So like. <laughs> Twin Peaks, which is not a kid's show, but I watched it as a kid, or like a Ulysses, which had a strong sense of that, but also ones that are willing to have a messy ending. Um, so shows like Dungeons and Dragons and um, Battle of the Planets or Blake Seven, things where the good guys did not always win. And so the villain or the, the kind of situation they're up against felt real because it couldn't always be overcome. Mm -hmm. There was a genuine power there. So I generally disliked shows that were very tidy and, and wrapped up and the, the good guy would always triumph. Uh, so yeah, I should also mention the 80s Moomin series, which was the cutout stop motion version of it, not, and not the others, because that had a very strong sense of the elements and things happening that were out of their control. And they just as a family rode on it, like went, just went with a wave of that. and. Um, I definitely try and get a sense of that into uh, Dave Spud and my work. All absolutely wonderful recommendations. Um, and it has been a real, real pleasure, a real joy to talk to you. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've learned so much. Um, so I really, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you. You have been listening to Even Baddies Wear Helmets. The podcast was hosted by me, Billy Collins, produced by Cloda Chapman with music from Finley Stafford and our lovely logo was designed by Lucy Tiller. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find us on social media at Even Baddies Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you subscribe, share, tell your mates. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon.